How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode two of X Lapse the Nation, where we are going to continue our. Actually, we're going to begin looking at the X Termination miniseries. As the first episode of this program was the massive five-page countdown to X Termination, which I somehow still spoke about for about a half hour. But uh, let's get into this one here. We are going to. Break into the miniseries proper, the event miniseries proper, with Extermination Number 1, which had an October 2018 cover date. The story is called well, Extermination Part 1 of 5. I guess it's fitting. Written by Ed Brisson, with art by Pepe Larez, colors Marty Gracia, letters VCs Joe Sabino, edits Robinson Shan, White Sabolski, cover price $4.99, and went on sale August 15th of 2018, which is... A lot longer ago than I thought it was. It, it, time is just a, a very weird and wobbly thing of late, isn't it? Now, let's get into the story. We pick up sort of kind of where we left off with at least one of our Countdown 2 pages from last episode. Here we are with 20 years into the future and we're at the Xavier Institute for Mutant Education and Outreach in Central Park. That reminds me, where was Professor Xavier during these blue and gold years? Was he was he still dead from uh, Avengers vs. X-Men? Was was he an Avenger at this point? Was he uh, was he locked in a secret shield bunker? I don't know, maybe all three. Anyway, what we've got here is a figure in a tattered hooded cloak walking amid the wreckage and destruction. He just so happens to come across an older version of young Cyclops who is dead. And he comments how none of this is right. And I agree. He also blames some old bastard for screwing it all up, suggesting that it's now up to him to fix a mess. This mess. Double page spread of creds, and we return to comics in Chicago, Illinois, present day. There's an anti-mutant rally, nothing we haven't seen a trillion times before, and we'll probably see a trillion times again. Now these nutcases are all acting a fool because there's a pair of young mutants present who are really freaking them out. They are kind of freaky. It's actually those creepy gray-skinned black-eyed kids Maxime and Manon, and this would be their first appearance. I remember asking, where did these guys come from? Well, here they are. Now to really drive home the ignorance of these demonstrators, they're also expressing that they have a problem with the fact that these children speak French. We can't just go halfway, can we? We have to go full-on xenophobe here, which might suggest that these demonstrators are just flat-out bigoted than mutant-phobic. I don't know where I'm where I'm going with this, but it just felt like an unnecessary addition here. I mean, they could have been bad enough people just hating mutants. I don't know. Whatever the case, the X-Men Blue Team are here on the scene to pull the rescue. 
The Time Displaced Original Five are joined by Bloodstorm. Bloodstorm? Wait, wait, wait. It couldn't be. Could it? Did, did, did X-Men Blue really dip into the friggin' Mutant X dimension? Are we talking Mutant X on my show? Mutant X on my... I don't... Uh, we'll, we'll put a pin in that. Anyway, the Tots are rescued and brought back to Central Park for examination. There, Dr. Cecilia Reyes gives them the once-over and a lollipop each, and also gives them a clean bill of health. Young Jean adds that she entered their minds, with their permission, of course, because Young Jean always gets permission first. Right? Yeah. Uh, Well, she found nothing wrong with them either, so it looks like they are healthy in body and mind. We jump to a little bit later, and we join Young Scott and Bloodstorm, who are out on a date at some Thai restaurant. They talk about how they're both displaced people, right? They're not from this world, this universe, this era. And uh, they also talk about how that shouldn't necessarily preclude them from attempting to enjoy each other's company. Now, you see, young Scott here is a bit skittish about becoming romantically entangled with the young, vampiric Aurora Monroe. And in case the name didn't, you know, give it all away, Bloodstorm is a vampire version of Storm. Maybe from the mutant next dimension, of which the uh, less said, the better. Um, now, the conversation is cut short by the arrival of Ahab and a pair of hounds. Well, that was unexpected. Uh, they appear to be here to take out Cyclops, but they're going to be in for a fight. Now, Scott doesn't know who these characters are. He doesn't know Ahab, he doesn't know hounds, but he does recognize the facial markings of the hounds. Because, you know, he does know Rachel, and she has those things. From here, we get several pages of a fight. Ahab lunges for Scott with his uh, spear drawn, but Bloodstorm, after taking a panel or two to straighten her mohawk, jumps in the way. She is run through with Ahab's spear, and she dies. Cyclops absolutely loses his stuff here and just unleashes a hellacious optic blast, which nails the bad guys and pretty much levels the Thai restaurant that they were eating at. Ahab and company, they bug out. They're done. They leave Scott all alone with Aurora's body and the smoldering remains of the tie joint. He picks her up, calls in a code blue to Jean, and then heads for home. Elsewhere, Bobby is seeing a play. I think it's Hamilton. That's the one that everyone goes gaga for because it makes them feel like historically smart, right? I think that's what he's seeing. Whatever the case, he gets a psychic call from Jean. Code blue. There is something up with Bloodstorm. And so Bobby ices up and heads toward home. On the way, however, we can see he's being watched by our mystery man, the man in the tattered hooded cloak. He's watching him. Bobby's zipping by on his ice slide, which suddenly gets blasted to bits. Then there are several more blasts in Bobby's direction. Now Iceman looks around to see who's shooting at him, but can't, can't figure it out, can't see who this is. But then he sees Cable who gives him the whole come-with-me-if-you-want-to-live spiel. Iceman whips up a bunch of ice golems to confuse his attacker, you know, if he's going to shoot ice figures, it might as well be fake ones, right? But it's all for naught because Bobby gets blasted. We jump back to Xavier's, where Scott bumps into Rachel Gray and tries to get more information on these hounds. As mentioned, he did recognize their facial markings, which are the same as Rachel's, who was also a hound. Rachel reveals that the man that they're now after is Ahab, and of course he is the one responsible for making her a hound in the first place. Scott asks how he might find this Ahab, and then young Beast pops his head in and mentions that Bobby ain't back yet, and he can't be raised on his communication device. 
so let's go back to Bobby here. He's been blasted, you see. We, we just saw that. Now this tattered, hooded, cloaked figure walks towards him, but is attacked and then held down by Cable. The mystery man blames Cable for the time-displaced originals being here, messing everything up. Cable asserts that they needed to be here, which... I mean, did they really? I mean, I like you, Cable, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is a... Uh, I don't think you're... I don't think you're right here. Now, Cable posits that with everything the time-displaced crew learned in the present, they could, in theory, eventually return back to the past from where they came from with that must much-needed knowledge so that they can be better in the present day. And, you know, poor to me, wonders if that might have been Brian Bendis' original plan for this book. Like, sort of a way to do an in-story reboot of a handful of characters, and, uh... Let's put a pin in that. We'll talk about that after we're done with the synopsis. Jump back to Xavier's. Young Jean is hooked up to Cerebro to try and find Bobby. She can find him, but she can't connect. It's almost as though he's been knocked offline, is what she says. She can tell that he's not alone, though. There are two others with him. One is using a psi shield, and the other is Cable. Oh, Warren, uh, Angel, he's here, by the way. Doesn't do a whole heck of a lot, but stand around silently, but he's here. So we're getting to see all the original five uh, time-displaced mutants here. Beast asks if Gene might be able to get inside Cable's mind in order to see whatever it is that he's seeing. Gene expresses a little bit of reluctance. I mean, I don't know if they're just like retconning her to be really, you know, super careful with her powers after we saw several years of her not being. I don't know, maybe she learned a lesson. Maybe she's growing as a character just in time to be... Booted off the table. I don't know. Let's go back to the fight. Cable and the mystery man roll around for a bit, with our hooded fella getting the better of the exchange. Then with Cable on the ground, our mystery man points his gun at him point blank. He tells him that the old man has outlived his usefulness, and then kills him. As he walks away, he comments that the old man really should have seen this coming. Whoa. Deja vu, right? Huh. Now, Cable's death causes tremendous feedback to hit Jean as she's using Cerebro, and she is knocked on her butt. When she recovers, she reveals to the rest that Cable is no more. Cable is dead. Back in the city, our mystery man picks Bobby up and slings him over his shoulder before body sliding by two. Uh-oh. C- could this be who I think it is? Yeah, of course it is. We know who this is, but let's play along till the reveal, okay? Jump back to Xavier's later on in the day. Jean tells Rachel that Cable is dead. She doesn't react well. After all, he is sort of kind of her brother. Then the real Jean Grey and Nightcrawler bamf in from the Red Book to check in. Fake Jean tells real Jean that Nathan is gone, and uh, real Jean reacts kind of coldly. She comments that Cable is you know, sort of kind of her son, but really doesn't seem to emote. You know, it's very, very point-blank matter-of-fact. Scott then fills her in on Bloodstorm's passing as well. And Jean just says that whoever did it'll pay, right? Now, Scott assumes that both of these casualties of the issue were at the hands of Ahab. But Kitty, thinking out loud, wonders if maybe there's more than one threat out there. Hmm. Well, we wrap up the issue at an undisclosed location. We could see young Bobby Drake in a sort of containment pod alongside four more empty containment pods. Our mystery man comments that he's got one down and four to go. And we close out with the revelation that our big bad for this issue was, say it with me, Kid Cable. 
Here he is. This is where he came from. It answers one of my biggest questions from this X-Lapse experiment. Even though we, we kind of knew. It's, it's, nice to have the, uh, it's nice to have the confirmation here and, uh, and actually cover the story that he makes his first appearance in. We do wrap up the issue with a missive from Ed Brisson, who is the writer of this book in the series. And uh, one key takeaway from this uh, missive here is the mission statement for extermination here. The one thing they wanted to keep in mind as they put this series together. And it comes down to four words. Your back issues matter. I am on board with that. You know me. I am a huge fan of lore, and the fact that this series will make a conscious effort to make it so everything we've read before actually matters and feeds into what we're doing Hey, nothing but uh, nothing but thumbs up for that. So we will have a lot of fun analyzing the uh, you know the next four issues of this miniseries here and seeing what bits and pieces of history that are being uh, played with and uh, perhaps manipulated or just used to serve the story as it uh, continues. So really happy about that. Let's talk about this opening chapter here, which was really good, really good opening chapter here. Um, of course. I am coming into this having the main beat of the issue spoiled. It's not a fault of the issue. It's not a fault to anybody. This was a pretty big reveal. I mean, we've got a whole ongoing series going on right now, which features our big reveal character, right? We do have Cable, one of the best books of the Dawn of X line right now, right? He, This is where the kid came from. And we've also flashed back to this old man Cable death scene a few times at this point, right? Now that said, plus the fact that I dragged my feet on reading this, like I said, not a fault of the story. And even with the knowledge, I still very much enjoyed the way this all played out. Gotta say, I was completely ignorant to the fact that Bloodstorm was part of the blue team. Um, but I mean, and I, I give Mutant X a lot of grief and a lot of guff, but I love lore, right? I love lore, and if this is in fact the same Bloodstorm as the one from the Mutant X Dimension, I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. I, I'll, I'll still raz Mutant X. I'll still make fun of Mutant X when, <laughs> when it comes up in conversation. I'll still roll my eyes at it, and I'll still have, you know, some tremors from uh, having had read it. But more lore, more continuity. To me, that's a good thing. And, I mean, the mission statement here, the back issues matter. So perfect, 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 perfect. Speaking of which, let's look at the other big bad here. Not just Kid Cable, we also have Ahab. Now, I'm not sure if I'm reading too much into this, but here's a hot take from back in the extremely long ago. Now, when I entered the X fandom circa 1991 or so, one of the biggest mysteries, not just in X-Men comics, not just in Marvel comics, but in the entire comics industry was just who the hell is Cable, right? And in letters pages and comic shops on Usenet, uh, speculation was at a fever pitch. And one of the leading theories back then was that Cable was Ahab, which is weird, right? Back in the Days of Future Present crossover, which took place in the X-Book and Fantastic Four annuals, I think 1990 or so, Ahab was the big bad there. Cable, who was just, he was leading the New Mutants at the time, he managed to get close enough to Ahab to get a good look at him, and he became very, very freaked out. To which Ahab laughed and asked if he uh, saw someone he knew. Now, sure, this could have been that 90s thing where every mysterious new character seems to have history with every other mysterious new character, because we got that a lot. 
But some of the leading speculation was that Cable would eventually become Ahab. That didn't turn out to be the case, as if I'm remembering right, a minor character from Excalibur would be revealed as eventually becoming Ahab, but it was definitely interesting food for thought. And, I mean, if we're taking Comic Shop and Usenet Rumors into account, his inclusion in this story, which has a heavy cable focus, is pretty neat, right? It's interesting stuff, at least to me. I mean, I can't speak for everybody. Let's talk a little bit about the cable-on-cable violence here. As mentioned, we've seen a few takes on this scene over the past little while in the Dawn of X books, and they're always similar, but never quite the same. You know, uh, sometimes the dialogue is slightly different, Kid Cable's cloakedness is inconsistent, but it's really the main beat that matters, right? Kid Cable kills Old Man Cable. But let's go back to the reasoning for this standoff in the first place. Now, if I'm reading this right, Kid Cable sees what the future will bring should the time-displaced original five remain in the present day and would very much like to avoid that future. Old Man Cable's assertion is that the original five needed to come to the present in order to go back and be better people, in order to make the X-Men as a whole better in the present. Let's talk about that. I've long spoken about Bendis having, like, two or three stock plots. Before I get into it, I'm a Bendis fan. I like much of his work. I own almost all of his superhero work, and that's a lot of damn books. But when Bendis gets stunty, he gets stunty, and it comes down to two or three plots. First one, everything you thought you knew was wrong. Second one, secret identity reveal. Third, reboot, relaunch, recycle. Right? Part of me now wonders if when Bendis pitched the all-new X-Men, assuming he did, and it wasn't an editorial mandate or a marketing stunt or whatever, if it was with an eye toward eventually rebooting the X-Men via butterfly effect. And I mean, we could get into things like time loops and splinter timelines and whatnot here, but that sort of talk is a little too abstract for me, and it also doesn't serve my narrative or story, so we'll set that aside. So let's look at this. From Old Man Cable's point of view, they come back to they come to the future or the present, get some knowledge, go back to the past, right? So let's say all new X Men happens, and it's a one year storyline, like it probably should have been in any case. Then say the young X Men go back to the past with all the knowledge and go about setting things, you know, quote unquote, right. That would or could, in effect, rewrite the X Men from that point on. And it could have been a very interesting experiment, and as frustrating as it would be for us tenured X-fans, it would have delivered an in-canon rationale for removing some inconvenient bits of X-history. I mean, let's consider some of the bigger beats from from even just the Claremont era, the early Claremont era. Even some, I guess, Claremont-adjacent stuff here, because it's not his work, and it's actually before he came on. Does the Deadly Genesis trip to Krakoa happen with Vulcan, Sway, Petra, and Darwin? Does that happen? If we know how it ended, do we still do it? Would Dark Phoenix still happen? You know, if the original five know that the Phoenix Force and Jean are two different things, does it happen? If Jean's presumed death doesn't happen, does X-Factor happen? Does Scott still meet and marry Madeline Pryor? Is Cable even born in the first place? Cable, the guy who says they were needed here, might be signing his own in-existence warrant, right? 
I mean, the possibilities are endless, aren't they? Uh, so many opportunities to zig instead of zag. And I wonder where that might have left us in present day had it gone down that way. And I wonder if that might have been part of the impetus for the all-new book to begin with. You know, it is coming out of AVX, where things were kind of nebulous, and it could have been a very, very interesting, uh, a frustrating but interesting thing to do. I mean, if that was a what-if story, and I hate what-if stories. I think what-if stories are the biggest waste of time. But a what-if in this situation, I'd probably read it. As long as it wasn't treated like a throwaway like most of the what-if books are. It'd be like a mutant version of Back to the Future 2, right? Uh, but might still make for an interesting story, even if they just made it a temporary thing. You know, you have this butterfly effect make the present and future even worse for mutants, for, for all we know. I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot of things we can discuss and consider and analyze there. And uh, maybe we'll, we'll talk about this more another time. But let's get back to the issue itself here. Um, the art here was wonderful. The art here was amazing. This is our, our Hawks art team, if I'm recalling right. And I mean, they didn't just deliver, they over-delivered. This was a gorgeous book. I think my only complaint, if I can even call it that, was uh, Real Jean's sort of kind of coldness when she was filled in on everything that had happened during the issue. Very, very matter-of-fact, which didn't totally sit right with me. Maybe I'm... I don't know, maybe it's hard to read a tone in, you know, sequential art. So she just looked very, very matter-of-fact. Um, overall, I'm really happy to finally be getting around to this story. And I'm also really glad to be able to share it with all of you here. And if anyone listening would like to share some of their what-ifs, you know, if the original five were sent back with the knowledge of everything that was yet to come, and what would have changed, what wouldn't have changed, what would have been better, what would have been worse... Just all your hot takes. I'd love to hear them, and I would love to share them here on the channel for future discussions. So please don't hesitate to reach out with some uh, some far-flung hot takes. I, I'd love to hear them and share them. But uh, I think that's all I got to say about this issue. If you would like to get a hold of me and maybe share some of your ideas, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Hey, you can also share your thoughts on our little Facebook group. That is 90s X-Men on Facebook. And you can listen to the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That's where we'll leave it for this fine Sunday. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today, and I really look forward to hearing some of your thoughts on uh, this issue and... Some potential fallout had uh, things gone a different way. So thanks once again, and until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.